Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your guest host, Matthew Bruckner, an associate professor at Howard University School of Law. My guest today is Kara Bruce, professor at the University of Toledo College of Law. Kara, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad you're here. I really liked your article, Bankruptcy's Adjunct Regulator with Alexandra Sickler, and so I'm I'm delighted you agreed to join us. Thank you. Yes, and I, I appreciate your feedback that you've given me before, and I'm happy to answer any questions you have. Uh, well, so I'd love to just start with having you sort of tell us a little bit about the article, you know, the sort of elevator pitch, so to speak, uh, and then we can sort of dive deeper on issues as we get into things. Okay, uh, great. Well, to begin with, uh, the paper uh, explores the regulatory potential of the Consumer Prote- Financial Protection Bureau in bankruptcy. Um, so to understand what we're doing here, I think it's important to start with the problem uh, that we've observed and and written about in in our prior solo work. Um, And the problem is that certain large creditors have found that they can profit from widespread but small scale in in, any individual case uh, misconduct. Um, So creditors in bankruptcy sometimes profit just through sloppiness um, and corner cutting. Uh, So they're not uh, doing everything they need to do to comply with bankruptcy procedure. Um, And other times, some creditors are are outright overreaching. They're extracting more than their fair share from the bankruptcy process. Um, So we can talk about this more later, but there are a variety of reasons why this type of behavior slips through the cracks in bankruptcy. Um, And we argue that the CFPB is really well positioned to serve as an additional check um, on that type of behavior. So t- to support that claim, we kind of have two parts of the article, two contributions. Um, the first half of the article is descriptive. It describes how the CFPB's regulatory authority sort of naturally carries over into these bankruptcy matters. I mean, I think that really disturbs the notion um, that bankruptcy is its own sort of self-contained unit. Um, and then we consider in, in the second part how we can tap into that overlap. Um, and build modest, uh, what we believe are common sense uh, regulatory strategies. That's great. Yeah, so I really, uh, I read the article, I really liked it. I thought that that uh, that made uh, great sense to me. Um, um, As you know, I'm uh, I'm in the midst of applying for tenure, and I've been thinking a lot about how I might choose to spend my uh, post-tenure career, assuming things go well. Um, So I was really interested to... um, you know, this is a topic that you've written in before, and Alexandra has written in before. Uh, it's just you know curious um, why this topic. What makes you know you can write about whatever you'd like. What makes you passionate about this topic in particular? Oh well, that's a fun question uh, to answer. Uh, you know, I really like this topic because it allows me to continue to uh, to write about something that that troubles me, which is this sort of widespread misconduct in bankruptcy. Um, I've written about this for a lot of years. I keep thinking I'm going to move on, but then um, something else happens. I I read about a new line of cases and I get all riled up again. And and so then I dive back in using a different dimension. Um, So um, this uh, article is is a little refreshing to me because all of my prior work has really focused on 
private claims and how uh, litigants like the debtor and the debtor's attorney and maybe the case trustee who's who's involved in bankruptcy cases can police misbehavior. Um, but here, you know, we're taking more of a public regulatory um, s- solution, uh, or we're exploring that. And I, th- I think that's fun. I think it's unexpected. Um, just uh, when you think about the CFPB, um, you don't you don't really think of it, it carrying over into the bankruptcy process. So I like that dimension of it, um, and it just gives me an ability to try to uh, continue to find solutions to this problem that that really troubles me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know, your article focuses on the bureau, the CFPB, as sort of a bankruptcy regulator, as you call it. Uh, and so you, you talk about, uh, you know, in the piece, you have the descriptive element and a more normative element. So I was just wondering if you could sort of, you know, give us a little bit more of the detail. Um, you know, so what is the role the bureau currently plays, and what is the role that you envision for the bureau to be uh, playing in the future if if you had your druthers? Um, sure. Uh, so that is, it's it's a big question, and I'm going to carve out one kind of elephant in the room uh, and, and not talk about it. Um, and I hope that's okay. I'd, I'd like to just sidestep the whole political dimension of the CFPB right now. Um, I think most people who are tuning in probably know that under the current administration, the CFPB is not really um, doing exactly what uh, we might expect the Bureau to do um, in uh, under optimal circumstances. Um, so if, if we can just focus on maybe what the Bureau historically did or what we might expect um, of the Bureau, I think uh, the idea is uh, that right now they regulate things like mortgage servicing, payment processing, debt collection. Um, And those very same creditors who are collecting consumer debt outside of bankruptcy are still collecting debt and and interfacing with debtors when the debtors enter bankruptcy. The relationships between those parties have not changed, have not stopped just because a bankruptcy case is filed. Um, On the contrary, now the relationship has become just way more complicated because bankruptcy, as you know, is so procedurally um, rigorous. Um, so I think where the Bureau is regulating right now, um, they're doing it uh, in sort of a careful, maybe reactive way. Um, so when they're issuing rules that affect bankruptcy, they're trying to sort of uh, harmonize the rules um, so that so that um, they can regulate conduct and not run afoul, uh, have creditors run afoul of bankruptcy law when they're trying to comply with this consumer protection regulation. And supervision and enforcement, um, when the Bureau's uh, engaging in these types of behaviors, uh, maybe they'll sweep some bankruptcy-related behaviors um, up when they're um, looking at, at, at misbehavior uh, more more broadly um, outside of bankruptcy, uh, but what we're, what we what we do not see and what we would like to see is just a, a subtle shift in priority. Where when the bureau is going out and 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 exercising its uh, statutory authorities, it's got the bankruptcy implications of its conduct squarely in focus. Um, so you know that can be information gathering where there where there thinking through the bankruptcy issues that that are um, are, are coming to the fore and 
um, and gathering information and maybe sharing that information with the United States trustee program or other bankruptcy regulators um, so that so that bankruptcy regulators can do their job a little bit better. Um, so, so that's a, a big aspect of it, just the information gathering. And then when they're just going about their business, sort of shifting um, or, or at least uh, considering the bankruptcy implications of their work. I was wondering if you might give sort of uh, like a really concrete example from you know debt collection or mortgage servicing or something that uh, where the bureau is has been a little bit more uh, reactive um, um, in their current or historic regulatory approach, uh, w- but that you would like to see them be more proactive. So if you mm-hmm. make it maybe a little more sort of concrete for the listeners? Sure, sure. Um, so I'll give you, a good, I think a good example is um, uh, CFPB's enforcement activities. Um, they've taken many enforcement actions against creditors for um, a variety of, of, of problems that, that these, uh, you know, um, uh, misconduct of these creditors that, that includes bankruptcy misconduct and non-bankruptcy misconduct. Um, and I'm thinking of one consent order in particular with various debt buyers that was written uh, in, in very expansive terms where, um, where you could see the Bureau was trying to get the debt buyer to agree not to collect stale debt, debt for which the statute of limitations has run by any means. So, so the consent order is super duper expansive, um, but, but doesn't squarely consider or, or address bankruptcy debt collection um, or filing claims in bankruptcy. And so arguably that's leaving an escape hatch open um, that, that creditors might seize on. Um, so when uh, the Bureau is, is engaging in these types of efforts, when they're reaching consent orders or when they're um, you know, drafting uh, regulations, if, if they know the bankruptcy sort of um, landmines um, and, and can draft around them, then I think we'll close some of those gaps and and uh, prevent that type of misconduct from springing up in its wake. Thank you. That's, sure. that's really helpful. Um, and sort of flows, I think, uh, nicely to the next question, which uh, I had, which was you, know, you sort of note in the article that uh, the bankruptcy is existing, regulatory uh, regulators uh, are often unable to Cabin, what you call negative value bankruptcy misconduct. Um, so I was hoping you might sort of talk a little bit more about um, who are or have in the past been the sort of the bad actors in bankruptcy cases, uh, you know, and talk a little bit um, uh, more about this misconduct that you're worried about. And then to sort of transition to, the, you know, talk a little more about, you know, so the CFPB is um, not the only player. You've talked about some of the other um members of the bankruptcy regulatory team or apparatus. And so why haven't they been up to the task? Um, yeah, so that's that's a great question. Um, and it's, it's it's really at the core of, of this article. You know, why are we looking uh, beyond bankruptcy for a new solution? Um, and, and the answer is that, that the bankruptcy structure uh, is not set up to deal with this type of widespread and pernicious misconduct in consumer cases. So, um, you know, there are plenty of people violate. This has been a real theme of your work, I feel I like. I know, I know. I, sh- I should branch out, but I just can't. I like it so much. <laughs> um, uh, and, and I guess I do branch out. These days I'm writing a lot more um, for the bankruptcy law letter. Um, so that gets me out of my... Um, 
my core focus. But but yes, I do. Um, I always come back to this issue, and I find it um, arises in in a, a lot of different um, a lot of different contexts, and and always gives me a new sort of remedial issue to talk about. So yes, uh, uh, still beating this drum so many years later. <laughs> um, okay, so we have. Plenty of people violate bankruptcy law. My focus is on creditors. Uh, uh, These are often creditors, you know, repeat players, creditors who are involved in hundreds or thousands of bankruptcy cases and and subtly drawing more than their fair share. Um, uh, Bankruptcy's existing regulators, I would I would count uh, the debtor and the debtor's attorney in that in that definition. Um, also, the case trustee, who um, is somebody who sort of administrate, administers bankruptcy cases and tries to to bring uh, maximize the value of the estate for unsecured creditors. So, case trustee is there, and and in theory should be looking at um, addressing conduct where one creditor is overdrawing. Um, the United States trustee. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, if I can interrupt you for a second, can you say a little more about? How they overdraw? I mean, especially for non-bankruptcy people, I, I feel like they may think, you know, I'm in, I'm entitled to everything that my contract provides me to. What, what, what does it mean to sort of overdraw your fair share in this contract? Yeah, it's um, so it can be all different types of things, um, but where you see this come up, um, gosh, let's see. Uh, so uh, proof of claim um, problems are are very rampant. So creditors are filing uh, file proofs of claim that are um, uh, not uh, procedurally perfect, so they're missing documentation. Maybe they're false. They don't um, accurately. Uh, they don't claim things that they're uh, the creditors entitled to claim under under law or under the terms of the contract. So that's a big example. Um, uh, automatic stay and discharge violations. Now we're getting into the weeds of bankruptcy practice, but basically this is collecting debts that bankruptcy law says for for various reasons um, can't be done at that particular time or ever again. So these are the types of things that creditors can do um, to, to overdraw. Um, sometimes it's just a um, adding an, an improper fee or or claiming interest when they're not entitled to. Sometimes it's just you know um, economizing and not um, not paying somebody to um, to sign a document that they have to sign under penalty of perjury uh, that it's you know true and accurate. They're robo signings. So things like that. That's it's it's it can come up in a lot of different contexts, which is why. Um, yeah, that's why I kind of describe it more generally um, for this type of thing. Okay. So, but, Thank you, yeah, that's the kind of uh, conduct I'm I'm worried about. And there are a bunch of parties in bankruptcy who potentially could be dealing with it. Um, and I think the challenges that these parties face, again, we can get into the weeds of that. Some of them are specific to various parties, but um, but if we're generalizing, the challenges are first. Um, economics. Um, uh, you know, these harms are often very small. They're dispersed, but the gains to the party who's um, who's overdrawing or or just sort of under complying are pretty pronounced. Um, and and so, you know, that's the negative value thing. The idea that a lot of these 
harms are so small that nobody would actually go to the trouble of litigating them individually. You add to that the reality that bankruptcy professionals um, carry massive caseloads, which they handle based on economies of scale. Um, so, so that just makes it hard. And I know you've addressed these kind of incentives in your um, crowdsourcing piece and some of your other work. Um, so yeah, that's one big challenge. The other challenge to addressing this behavior in bankruptcy is, is structural. Um, and I think there are two structural issues. One is that the bankruptcy system is not really set up to gather information um, on sort of a market-wide basis. When you think about um, the powers that bankruptcy courts have or the U.S. trustee program has to gather information, it's really um, based on sort of a litigation-style framework. So it involves parties to the case um, at issue. And, and, you know, if that's a class action, that's one thing, but usually there are more individual cases or just a handful of cases. So we don't have that sort of market-wide information gathering potential that that the Bureau um, can bring to the table. Um, and the other structural challenge is just remedial. Bankruptcy's remedies are also not calibrated to police misbehavior on an aggregate basis. And when we've seen um, case law where judges and, and other parties have evidence that a creditor is doing something improperly um, in in the case before them and in a thousand other cases in that district, their efforts to craft a solution that goes beyond the case in front of them quite frequently fail. Um, and some of that has to do with the fact that bankruptcy judges are Article I judges, and some of it has to do with just the remedies and in the code and the procedural rules, but it's it's a really difficult nut to crack um, on, um, in within bankruptcy. So that's why um, those are the areas where I think a more public regulator like the CFPB can really add some value because that's what they're about. That sort of market wide information gathering and crafting um, in enforcement responses that are that are also um, sort of market focused. Absolutely. I mean, in you saying this, it really struck me that uh, that these problems are not, in many ways, bankruptcy specific problems. I mean, the problems you're talking about in particular arise in the case of bankruptcy, but the the instance of, of creditors asserting sort of small dollar claims against uh, thousands or even millions of consumers, uh, that, none of which have any incentive to litigate over a fifty dollar fee. Um, are just the sorts of uh, claims that have been uh, plaguing consumer advocates in other sure. contexts. And uh, I think in many ways really um, sort of justified or uh, was the basis for uh, justifications for uh, bringing the Bureau into existence in the first place. Um, um, and so, right, so, you know, my question may have been, uh, although I may have sort of, you know, well, that's my take, and so I'd love to hear your take. You know, why is the Bureau sort of best suited to sort of fill these gaps um, um, in sort of bankruptcy in particular. Um, um, but, you know, and I think especially since you note that uh, at the start that, you know, the Bureau's willingness to engage in sort of proactive consumer protection, um, what the right word is, right, really, but best sort of um, ebbs and flows with uh, who is uh, in the leadership role at the Bureau. And so, you know, why, um, why are they the best solution here? 
Yeah, so that's a great question, and I love the way you characterized um, the the role of the bureau um, and, and sort of how how it came into existence, the types of problems it was designed to solve. And um, that's really um, kind of underlying uh, the the shift that we're hoping um, uh, this this intersection of consumer law and bankruptcy law takes, where we can recognize um, that you know just like outside of bankruptcy. Um, the bankruptcy system was was not really designed with this type of behavior in mind, and and um, and and this agency really is well suited to address exactly this type of widespread pernicious small value behavior. Now, why do I think um, they're best suited? And you know, even with the uh, the political issues that I tried so hard to avoid, um, yeah, you know, it's a fair it's a fair question. Here's here's what I have to say. Um, I, you know, the problems uh, that that I worry about um, and can't stop writing about are pretty deep and and pernicious, and and I think they require a variety of different techniques um, to address. So I don't think the CFPB is a solution that excludes other regulatory responses. Um, but why I like it is that it has immediate, okay, almost immediate. Putting aside political realities, a very uh, 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 near-term feasibility. Um, we don't need Congress to act and bend over backwards to create this as a solution. All it takes is a subtle shift in priority. I mean, the CFPB already has the authority to regulate these types of debt collection activities. They're already deeply involved with certain companies who are misbehaving in bankruptcy. Um, and so if they are thinking about bankruptcy, if they hire um, staff members who have bankruptcy training, if they develop more robust consultation with the United States trustee program, um, then, you know, that's all we really need. It doesn't require any big legislative changes. It's just a subtle shift in priorities. And I don't even think it's one that really takes um, effort and attention away from other priorities. I think it, um, as, as long as there's some information and awareness, this, um, this bankruptcy, the bankruptcy dimension of the Bureau's work can be swept up pretty naturally. Mm -hmm. Well, so you keep really preempting. So, I, you know, my, I intended to ask you a little bit more. I intended to ask a little bit more about the sort of uh, you know the process by which the bureau would, you know, assuming they were on board, they would accomplish this. I feel like you really um, uh, engaged that uh, already quite a bit, um, and so I guess. Um, and maybe you I have more I can say more. <laughs> uh, I, I mean that's the part of the paper that I think is 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 really exciting and I hope that people engage with it because you know we've just sort of started scratching the surface. I mean we can we can talk about something else but No 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 please so yeah so um for people who are interested in the sort of process right so you know Imagine a world where uh, the CFPB is on board and they're like, you know, we are, um, they bring you in to consult with them, right? What, um, what, what, how do you suggest the Bureau sort of best exercise uh, oversight over these, um, um, uh, you know, 
companies persistently engage in this sort of negative value bank. Yeah. So, uh, so the thing that I'm most excited about um, in, in this section of our paper, where we really sort of set out a model um, for how the CFPB could go, it, it's probably the most boring to everybody else, but I think it has the most potential. Um, and that's the information gathering tools that the Bureau has that really don't have um, a, a parallel in bankruptcy. Um, so here we're talking about things like the Bureau's supervisory authority, where they can, you know, go and investigate and ask questions of creditors who are involved in the bankruptcy process. Um, and their manuals are publicly available and suggest that they may well be gathering this information already. Um, so there's also the consumer complaint database that is publicly available um, and involves bankruptcy related complaints. Um, so we have this information gathering capacity. And so if the CFPB sort of, if they need to do it more robustly, great, you know, beef that up a little bit. Um, but, but more than that, if they can just share the information that they gather with bankruptcy professionals, with bankruptcies regulators, then bankruptcy can kind of take care of its own enforcement much better than we already can. Um, now, that's not to say that the Bureau couldn't decide to take more targeted bankruptcy um, rulemaking and enforcement efforts. Um, you know, that's uh, I think that's within the scope of their authority. I mean, that would look like basically what they already do, but then keeping the bankruptcy implications of whatever they're doing in mind. So drafting those consent orders to make sure that they're closing escape hatches for um, creditors uh, engaging with debtors in bankruptcy and making sure their regulations are squarely handling the, um, the, the problem that a lot of these regulations face, which is, um, you know, you want to... to um, to have these companies provide information to debtors. Um, but when debtors are in bankruptcy, that, that creates automatic stay problems um, and, and things like that. So if the Bureau can kind of think about that overlap and, and rather than you know, ignore it or, or just exclude bankruptcy, harmonize um, the two, then they've done a pretty good job of that, I have to say, um, you know, when they were doing that kind of thing. Um, well, you know, as you said earlier, um, this piece um, relates, uh, you know, a lot to the prior work you've done that um, Professor Sickler has done. And um, so we're curious, um, you know, what what you see going forward, right? Are you going to continue to write in this area or are there, um, you know, threads you, you feel like you're going to continue to pull on in this direction? You know, what, what does the, the future hold for you uh, when, when you are um, a full professor? Well, thanks, Vet. Uh, so um, I am branching out a little bit, um, just a little bit. Um, so a piece that I'm working on on my own um, is is considering um, it's going back to what most of my earlier work um, focused on um, with this problem uh, and the role of private litigants like debtors and, and case trustees to address misconduct. Um, but I am taking that um, into the business bankruptcy context and considering um, standing issues facing private litigants when they try to address some um, big picture uh, bankruptcy misconduct that's playing out in business cases. So still kind of on this private litigation um, as, as a regulatory tool thing. Um, but branching out of the consumer field. Um, but, you know, Alex and I can't really uh, let our 
uh, collaboration uh, go either. We um, we always find something new to talk about, and so we are currently trying to get a, a short piece out about how courts are really um, flubbing the analysis uh, you need to take when you are comparing or trying to harmonize bankruptcy law and federal consumer protection law statutes. Um, that is um, usually, it, at least with bankruptcy it, it, and, and things like the FTCPA, um, it comes down to a question of implied repeal, whether the later statute impliedly repeals the earlier one. Um, and, and the Supreme Court's been pretty clear that, that implied repeal is sort of a last ditch um, finding. You're supposed to harmonize statutes whenever you can. Um, and you only find implied repeal when one, you can't f- comply with both. Bankruptcy courts uh, don't really, uh, I shouldn't say that. Some bankruptcy courts uh, dramatically uh, underread that um that rule and overread other things, dicta in certain cases, um, including the Supreme Court's recent Midland funding case. And I think as a result, they're really botching this analysis. Um, and, and in so doing, they're, they're stripping debtors in their districts of, um, of, a, of a really valuable tool to, to address misconduct. So, so that's where Alex and I are. Um, and I think we probably will continue to to have a piece that we work on together, you know, somewhere on the front side or back burner, um, because it it has been a pretty valuable um, uh, collaboration. Well, that sounds great. I I think um, it's a really, it sounds like a potentially really impactful article uh, to help improve consumer protection and bankruptcy and look forward to having you or uh, Alex back on the show when uh, that, uh, that piece is ready to talk about. Oh, thanks. Can I ask you what you're working on? I know you're the interviewer, but it almost, <laughs> uh, it almost seems right. Uh, yeah, so uh, uh, I'm working on a million things um, and um, mostly working on getting myself tenure this uh, this fall. And so putting a lot of my um, other projects on the back burner. But um, um, Brian uh, Fry was nice enough to interview me for this about my uh, bankrupting public public colleges piece, uh, which is my fourth in a series of higher ed articles. And I'm uh, getting started on the fifth one soon. Um, so, um, perhaps, uh, perhaps I'll, I'll be a guest on the show again at some point too. Um, but, um, you you know, you raised uh, your collaboration with, uh, with Alex and I I was really curious about that. So I, I co-authored my first article recently, which will be out soon in the Colorado law review with, uh, Dahlia and uh, Jimenez and Brooke Gottberg and Kristen Andersma. Um, you know, and I feel like our field sometimes thought to devalue co-authorship. Uh, and, uh, and so I was really interested to hear you talk about uh, your decision to co-author and what, uh, the, you know, the obviously things of a fruitful collaboration. What do you see are the benefits of, of collaborating like this with Alex? Oh, um, okay. So I met Alex in um, 2016 uh, at um, the Central States Law School Association Conference, which, as an aside, is a is an awesome conference for works in progress, not limited to law professors within the, uh, the Central States. I um, mean, it really started. Our collaboration started because we were writing in the same areas. We realized we had a lot of overlap in ideas, but kind of different backgrounds and. Um, 
and, and takes on the topics. So we thought it would be fun to write something together. Um, and now I think, depending on how you count it, we're on our fourth project. And um, so, yeah, it's it's been great. Um, the benefits to me, I think the biggest one, um, and this is something I know a lot of my uh, female academic friends face. I don't, I don't know if you would, would agree with this too, but you know, I'm pretty paralyzingly insecure about my ideas and my writing. And so, um, you know, the process of writing to me is, um, is, is really difficult. Um, and, and so having somebody work to work with really cuts through that noise, um, and allows me just to get my ideas on the paper and not worry about all the other stuff. Um, so that's a, big benefit to me. And another benefit is just, you know, when you have to put a project to bed um, because something else comes up or, you know, you're busy with other things. And it's really nice to open that document back up a week or a day later and find that somebody's done something on it. I, I always feel like it's, um, if you know that children's story, the um, the shoemaker and the elves, the cobbler and the elves, um, you know, the elves come and do all of the cobbler's work at night. Um, that's how I feel when Alex fill, fills in my footnotes for me. Um, so, and, you know, or develops the arguments or things like that. Um, I don't think it is really all that much more efficient, at least the way we co-author. I, I don't know if you have a perspective on this, because um, we didn't really do uh, the divide and conquer. You write part one and two. I'll write part. I'll write part three and four, and see you at submission season. Um, I think. I think sort of the benefit of not doing all the writing, um, the time saving there has been replaced with consensus building. Um, so you know, it's maybe not uh, any more efficient, but I think it's a lot more fun. Um, and yeah, that's the benefit of, of being over that tenure hurdle, which I know you will be soon. Um, yeah, I just don't, if, if it's devalued in our field or um, what I usually think of is uh, people, people just don't know how to assess it. Mm-hmm. Eh, I don't care <laughs> anymore. I like it. It's fun. Um, so, so that's, that's what it's been for me. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I, I really enjoyed the process of working with uh, my co-authors, uh, and I agree. It's, uh, it was no, se- it seemed no less time-consuming, um, um, even though, like you said, um, you know, regularly, you know, I was on uh, vacation when one of the uh, turnarounds of the edits were due, and um, and everybody else sort of, you know. Um, pulled my weight for me, uh, in that round of edits, um, that, um, you know, and I feel like, you know, various people living a lot of tight turnarounds and the law review editing schedule isn't actually very conducive. I feel like to, especially with four of us, um, that, you know, they repeatedly want sort of drafts in sort of three days and mm-hmm. it's hard, it's hard for four people to look at things and make comments and, uh, uh, built consensus in in really short turnarounds, uh, but you know I've also really enjoyed the process um, of working with these folks. Um, so I, I hope to do more of it. Yeah, and I think that I think the um, end result has to be better um, because you're basically workshopping every thought, every sentence, every footnote um, it, with a team of experts. Um, so you know I I think you're right. It is a some of the uh, the work and and especially the editorial process is tricky. Um, consensus building is tricky, 
but yeah, it's, it's fun. It's rewarding. And I, I think it results in a better work product. Yeah. And our, our editors suggested that, you know, especially in these tighter turnarounds that one of us just be sort of delegated to make all the decisions for everybody else. And, uh, nobody, nobody actually liked that <laughs> idea. Everyone will want to weigh in on the thing that's going to bear their name. Yeah. I, I have trouble with that too. I'm just kind of seeding control. But, you know, I, I have started to tell law review editors, and, and this is also just kind of being a parent and having sort of not a lot of margin for error in my um, daily life. Like, look, I can do a three-day turnaround, but I need a week's notice so I can clear the decks. Um, so that's, you know, that's a good idea. We haven't gotten our draft back from Florida, which is, um, the, this paper is going out in the Florida Law Review. Um, uh, I didn't realize it had gotten a placement. Oh, uh, yeah. Congratulations. Probably should have mentioned that earlier. So um, I would have mentioned if I had realized. I'm sorry for mm-hmm. not mentioning at the, the, the top of the show. No problem. Um, um, so, okay. you know, I, I will keep that in mind when they, um, when they bring, give us our draft back that, yeah, it's going to take a little bit longer than it might if if I were the only one looking at things. Thanks for that. So um, we've we've gone off on a little bit of a, a, a tangent from your piece uh, in terms of sort of co-authorship, and I appreciate your uh, bearing with. Uh, but I want to sort of bring it back for a sort of a closing question. To uh, not that I have anything particular that uh, I want to ask, but I want to sort of open it up to you to talk about. Uh, you know, is is there something that I should have asked about, or is there uh, something else you'd like to add about this piece? Uh, there is something I meant to say now that you bring it up, um, and uh, I, I must have gotten distracted or it, it just didn't come up. Uh, but, you know, I think anybody who has listened to the end of this uh, is probably aware that uh, the CFPB is in a bit of an existential crisis right now. Um, I think at last count, there were three pending cert petitions about um, the constitutionality of its leadership structure. Um, and so that is sort of, I, I picture it as sort of a Looney Tunes style anvil that's hanging out over our article and we'll just kind of see uh, how that falls. Um, but I, I did want to acknowledge that we know that that exists um, and that we also, at least I'm not all that concerned that it's going to completely moot this article just because, um, you know, my read of the tea leaves is that even if the court grants cert and even if the court finds that the CFPB's leadership structure is unconstitutional, they are not going to throw out the entire Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Instead, the remedy will be, as many lower courts have found, the appropriate remedy um, to sever the unconstitutional provisions from the remainder of the statute. Um, And so, you know, I think it's just worth mentioning before uh, we let this go that, you know, that's hanging out there. It's given us a little bit of heartburn, uh, but, but chances are good that it won't actually uh, disturb uh, our, our um, arguments all that much. So I'm not a, uh, particularly a court watcher, um, but uh, my understanding is that Justice uh, Kavanaugh, when he was on uh, the circuit judge, uh, um, had one of these cases, and uh, that was the remedy that he suggested. Yes. Um, so um, I'm, uh, you know, my view sort of largely aligns with your own too. So. Yeah. So let's um, hope so. You know, otherwise, <laughs> this is you know, hope 
well, at least it's accepted. I know I shouldn't say that, but <laughs> you know, let's I'm I'm hoping that this paper actually has the ability to um do some good and it would be a shame if um if that were otherwise. Well, thank you. You know, I, I'm, I'm teaching a consumer law seminar uh, at Howard this year, and uh, things I say to my students when they're sort of picking topics is, you know, you don't, you need to pick a topic that you, you should pick a topic that you're passionate about, that you're excited for, that you hope will make a difference in the world, because you could write about anything. You, you know, one of the joys of being a law professor is defining the problems we work on and proposing solutions. And so, um, you know, I'm, uh, glad you found uh, sort of a vein that uh, to mine that is uh, that brings you joy that to sort of think about it and work on and it's been really a pleasure to talk to you about uh, this article tonight. Thanks, Matt. It, it was a real it's a pleasure to be on the show and um, I appreciate you reaching out. Okay. Well, thanks so much, and uh, I'll look forward to talking to you again when the, the the next article is ready. Sounds good. Thanks, Matt. Have a good night. This is a song to celebrate banks because they are full of money and you go into them and all you hear is clinks and clanks or maybe a sound like the wind in the trees on the hills which is the rustling of the thousand dollar bills. Most bankers dwell in marble halls which they get to dwell in because they encourage deposits and discourage withdrawals and particularly because they all observe one rule which woe betides the banker who fails to heed it which is you must never lend any money to anybody unless they don't need it. Oh, you cautious conservative banks, what I know about you. If people are worried about their rent, it is your duty to deny them the loan of one Confederate sou. But suppose people come in and they have a million and they want another million to pile on top of it. Why, you brim with the milk of human kindness and you urge them to accept every drop of it. And you lend them the million, so then they have two million. And this gives them the idea that they would be better off with four. So they already have two million as security, so you have no hesitation in lending them two more. And all the vice presidents nod their heads in rhythm. And the only question asked is, do the borrowers want the money sent or do they want to take it with them? But please do not think that I'm not fond of banks, because I think they deserve our appreciation and thanks. Because they perform a valuable public service in eliminating the jackasses who go around saying that health and happiness are everything and money isn't essential because as soon as they have to borrow some unimportant money to maintain their health and happiness, they starve to death so they can't go around anymore sneering at good old money, which is nothing short of providential. <laughs>